Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I'm really excited today. So as part of our African-American History Week, we had Zeli Rainey Orr with us, who is a businesswoman, a historian of African-American history, a writer and an award-winning poet. She's also a Mississippi native and a veteran of the civil rights movement. Hi, Zeli. Hi. Hi, Alex and Elena. How are you doing today? You're just telling us that we're actually recording this just as uh, John Lewis's funeral is taking place, aren't we? Yes quite emotional for me because it was John Lewis who in the 1960s actually was at the forefront of uh, organizing SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and myself when I got to March at age 13 and 64 as a part of SNCC, it was because of John Lewis opening that door. And he simply was a giant. We're going to tell your story today. Um, so I guess we start with, you grew up in Indianola, Mississippi. What do you remember of segregation? I remember that, you know, everything was about the colored and, uh, well, the signs that let us know where, where whites were permitted and colored, but more so going to the theater because there again, you know, segregated facility Blacks went uh, upstairs and whites went downstairs. And I always wondered why I had to get my refreshments outside in the weather when whites that we could see in the lobby could get theirs, you know, comfortably and, and uh, you know, in the weather in a good way. And we could not. So I remember that distinctively about the segregated facilities. And your elementary school was segregated, wasn't it? It was. So that was it a completely different school? Yeah, it was a completely different school in the county. There were the um, black school uh, for African-Americans, obviously, and the one for whites. And at the white school, uh, Asian-Americans went or Asians went to that school, but blacks only went to the black school. And uh, it was also elementary through high school. We did not, well, it was two different schools, but we did not have a middle school. So first through eighth at, at the time I went to school was elementary and ninth through 12th was high school. Did you have any contact at all with white children when you were small? I did. Uh, in 1967, specifically on February 20th, 1967, myself and eight others integrated the high school and the junior high school. Mm-hmm. So midterm, school would start in August of 66, but somehow we were the ones selected that in February of 67, 
we were told that we had to go to the white school. Three would enroll at the junior high school. Now, the whites had a junior high school, so we desegregated the white school. So the black kids, three went to eighth grade, junior high. Five of us went to the high school, and one went to the white elementary school. Do you remember what it was like to walk into that school full of white children and how they reacted to you? Well, it was definitely not pleasant. Um, No one actually, there were, at least for me, I didn't have an encounter physically, uh, except in the lunchroom. And I stopped going because when we sat down with our trays, uh, somebody would throw something, you might get a spitball and you look up and, and, you know, the kids just laugh. So you never knew where it was coming from, even to just maybe say something to them about stopping. But what I remember the most is that we were given brand new books when we went to the white school. I was informed on a Friday that that Monday, February 20th, we would be at the white school. So even though we were in the same county, our books were different for the same subject. So when I entered the white school, uh, it was at as if I was a brand new student. However, I was treated as if I had been there forever. I mean, no one took the time to say what page we're on, anything like that. And truly, um, we really were not welcome, but we were there. As a little girl, did you have any inkling of this being something that you wanted to fight? I did not. I really deep within was praying and hoping I was going to make friends with white kids that they would see that I was not so bad and, and perhaps that I was not a dumb person. And I really was hoping that I would make a difference in the community that white kids would become friends with me. It just for me. So to tell you on a Friday that come next Monday, you would be going to a different school. That's hard enough for a high school kid, but it doesn't strike me that you got any time to mentally prepare for the confrontation that you were going to walk into or that anybody much cared how you were going to deal with it emotionally. Exactly. I mean, and we didn't know we were going to be going, like I said, on a Friday, actually about 30 minutes before school ended. School normally was out at three o'clock. We got called to the principal's office at 2.30. And that, like I said, five of us were at the high school. And of course, we got to the office looking at each other, wondering, why are we here? And uh, so the principal explained to us that we had been, you know, selected, that we would be going to the new high school, well, not the new high school, but to the white high school starting Monday, that we were to leave our books at the black school, which the name is Gentry High, mm-hmm. that we were to leave our books there, turn them in, and on Saturday, we would go to the library, and we would be given new books, getting ready for the white school on Monday, and of course, myself and others objected. We were like, no, we're not going, we don't, you know, and we were told in order to go to school in Mississippi, you must go. So they were basically telling you that is your school now. And if you don't like it, you don't get an education. Right. Not in Mississippi. Were you scared? Yes. Yes. Because again, no preparation, not knowing what to expect. But luckily when we went and um, there were two cars that took us over, you know, like five of us in one vehicle, four in another, 
even though the high school and the junior high were one building. So the kids that went to the junior high went into their hallway, into their classroom. Those of us that were in the high school went to our classroom. Now, we just had numbers to be able to find the classroom. It wasn't like, you know, people are waiting for us. So that, again, was just just was an awkward kind of time, and especially at 15, you know, I, mm-hmm. I just really being 15 and now isolated because uh, I did have a class with a, one black girl, um, and so that was, a, you know, seeing each other was like a good connection, but overall, again, it was a lonely feeling. How long was it before any of the other children started to accept you? Uh, the ex- when school ended, the end of May or around the 20-something of May, we did not go back again. When school ended, we were preparing to go back because we were then told that more Blacks would be over there. But when school started that following latter August or whatever, we were notified that we were not in the right district and could not come back. Now, we, so uh, school really was not fully integrated until 1970. So starting August of 67, I'm back at the black school for 11th grade and then 12th grade. I graduated from the black school. And the next year in 70, uh, they would finally integrate, well, where they sent the kids over in a, a, a large number to the white school. But the white kids had a private school built. It was already being built when, the, when we went over in 67. So when the black kids got to the white school, I hear that there were very few white kids left. They had all gone to the private school that still exists today. So would you say that in Indianola, uh, desegregating the high schools was initially a complete failure? Yes. Yes, I would. Yes. never thought of it. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't I, like, as a total outsider as well, it doesn't strike me that anyone much thought about what you as, as children would go through. Was there any media attention when you got in the cars and went over to the to the white school none at all it was never even mentioned and actually when I graduated in 69 I moved to California my mother's sister lived there I'd been there for about 40 years so I moved in with her family and would go to college and when I got my transcript it showed Gentry High and Indianola High I am the only one I've been told out of the five students that it even mentions Indianola High School on that, on, on their transcript, that it doesn't even show they ever went to the, to the white school. If it's okay with you, we're just going to go back in time a bit to 1964. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Charlie Scattergood. Uh, he was a white college student um, and he wasn't from the South. What drove him to become involved in the civil rights movement? According to his records now at the time in 64, he was a student at the University of Seattle, I'm sorry, of the University of Washington in Seattle. And actually about six months prior to that, he had gotten involved in marches in Seattle. And then he would go to San Francisco and march based on, they were trying to get jobs for blacks at the Sheraton Palace Hotel. And it was there that he got jail for the first time or he went to jail and had his jaw broken and everything. But anyway, according to his letters, I've got all of his materials, his memorabilia as far as letters he wrote home to his mom that they collected. 
he said that he realized that something was wrong when black people could not even be able to sit at the front of a bus. And I mean, this was in 1955 that Rosa Parks, of course, made a difference. But mm-hmm. still in Mississippi in the 60s, blacks could not vote and uh, segregation was still, you know, um, just very fluent. So you've already mentioned Charlie was part of the, it's the SNCC SNCC, isn't it? Which stands for? Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And that is the same organization that effectively carried John Lewis to Selma, isn't it? Exactly, yes. But Charlie came to Indianola. So what happened two doors down from your house in the summer of 64? In the summer of 64, actually the the burning started in 65. So Mm -hmm. the the Freedom School, of course, they started a Freedom School, Charlie, and moved onto our street. So he and two others, two whites, one black, and he was one of the whites that moved onto our street in Indianola. So as a black person and having whites in the community, we saw them regularly, you know. So he stood out, even when he didn't know my name, okay. But he (laughs) stood out and... So, and of course, once the marching started, my parents were involved, uh, you know, and anyway, I got a chance to march along with other young students. But when Scattergood came in 64, we didn't have the bombings until 65, and specifically March 5th, 1965, four buildings were burned in our city in one night, and one of those was a house two doors down from me. That's where Charlie and all had moved into that house. And it was uh, owned by Mrs. Magruder, an elderly uh, black lady. They firebombed the house and it burned to the ground. The police, I mean, the fire truck came. And instead of putting it out, they claimed they could not get the fire hydrant. Um, They couldn't get it, you know, the water working properly. But we know that there was kind of their own way of resisting and intimidating us, you know, to cause fear. So... The short of it is I got to watch that house two down, two doors down from my house burn. And to try and prevent the fire from spreading, the fire hose, the, the firemen sprayed the house next to Mrs. Magruder and including our house. So to watch that happen in 65 at 14, it was for the first time I realized that people really hated us. You know, I, I, just because we were trying for the right to vote. We weren't even trying to really integrate anything. Blacks were marching, saying one man, one vote. I have to ask, Mrs. Magruder, you said she is, Irene Magruder was an elderly black lady, and she did what many, many people did at the time, didn't she? Which was let people move into her house, let people come from elsewhere, like Charlie, uh, like Martin Luther King did in Selma, uh, find a house, find someone willing to let, to put you up, feed you while you go about, marching and campaigning and protesting. Did you know her well? I did, yes. Yes, knew her well. She had a garden and we would go down and, you know, get food. And of course, only being two houses down, she was the type of lady who let us know because I was not one fond of cooking. And she would (laughs) say something to me about pretty much reminding me my mom was at work and she'd say, you know, what did you fix for your mother? Did you cook dinner yet? And, of course, it was like, no, ma'am. And she'd tell me, which is true, you'll never get a husband. Of course I did. But, yeah. <laughs> but, I, did, 
But that was rare. Mrs. Magruder was uh, really a pioneer in that time because whites were having a hard time finding places to move into. But being able to move into with Ms. Mrs. Magruder opened that door for whites in, in Indianola. Do you know what motivated her? I mean, she sounds like she was at a, a time in life and maybe she just wanted a quiet life, but she just said, hell no I'm gonna let these people live in my house two of them are white um, and I'm gonna let them move in and do their thing from my house she being you know very few blacks when I grew up at least in our neighborhood owned their own homes and she was one that did so I'm sure she felt that she could make decisions those of us like my parents were renting could not because you could be put out but you got to remember when Charlie came in 64, he went straight to Ruleville, and that's where Fannie Lou Hamer was. Miss Fannie Lou Hamer, you might have heard that name. Mm-hmm. So people knew we were aware of a movement. It just had not happened in July. Charlie's um, letters and stuff to his dad, it says in July, it's when he moved into, it, to move to Indianola. And Indianola was a county seat for Sunflower County. So where Mrs. Hamer was in Ruleville, that was still Sunflower County. So Mrs. I'm sure uh, Ms. Mrs. Magruder heard about what was happening and, and the need for, you know, a place for civil rights workers, and she was just willing. I hear that she was also bold that she had owned a nightclub uh, in Indianola. <laughs> so she was not conventional at all. She, I think she's uh, what my nan would have called in London a game old bird. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to ask, what happened to her after they burnt her house down and, or watched her house burn to the ground? Out of all the people whose houses, she was the only one. They had canceled her insurance, I hear, like at least two weeks before. But Mrs. Magruder, being the type of woman she was, was able to go and get insurance elsewhere without people knowing. So she was able to have her home rebuilt. It was oh, a wooden structure that burned, yeah, but her house was rebuilt. The other homes, uh, was well, there was another that burned to the ground. He was not able to ever get his home rebuilt. Uh, there was a store that was part of that four that ended up, uh, only a part of it burned, and they were able to put that out. The family did themselves and friends. And the fourth facility, let's see what that was. Oh, they only had a partial room that was on fire. So two okay. burned to the ground. One was a store owned by the Giles that the family and friends put out. And another was really in my neighborhood that also burned, but it was only one room that started burning, the Molotov cocktail. Someone awakened and was able to get it out of the room and get, you know, put out that fire. Uh, So as a 15-year-old, how does it, you said you realized then how much they hated you. How does that make you feel? I mean, you've not done anything to these people. I guess really, in a way, when you, for me, growing up in a segregated society, it was a way of life. But I thought, you know, not really understanding that by going to school with whites, they still would not see me as an equal. That's when my eyes were really open to the fact that somebody could hate me that much that they would not want to befriend me, not even talk to me. So, I think that, it, it, and to be honest, I uh, was going through a whole thing about I hated white people. Mm-hmm. And I think Charles Shattergood, who came into my life like 25 years later, yeah, uh, I, it changed me. 
to realize that, you know, it's not about color, that whites too, like in the, during the abolitionist time, there were whites who sacrificed. And so I cannot do this based on color. And it changed me. I evolved mm. from that hatred. You participated in demonstrations and marches with Charlie and his friends. What did that entail? Actually, going downtown, there would be a central place we would all meet at and leave from there with our signs and go what we called, at the time, uptown in the south. Uh, and we would, you know, and of course, there were the police and they tried to get us to disperse. And we did not. We would sing our songs. There was something truly about the freedom songs that, that kind of gave us, a, I guess, a feeling of that we can conquer this. No matter what, we're going to keep marching. So they taught us two nonviolent tactics so that in case the police starts to attack you or grab you, how to fall limp. And that did happen to me downtown. They weren't grabbing me, but they grabbed others around me that were older. And uh, so it, it was a scary moment, but there was something about knowing maybe I can just make a difference. So I got a chance to march, and Charlie Scattergood, of course, he went to jail, he and others, but uh, they didn't really take myself and a few others that were younger. We didn't go to jail. There might have been as many as 200 people marching, and they put in jail maybe, let's say, 25. Because mm -hmm. you were 13 years old, weren't you? Yeah, in 64 I was. Did you just turned... march with your parents? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. No, my mom, actually, my mother was active. My mother was one of those who carried a sign like they were protesting the superintendent. They were trying to get him out. So my mother was across the street from our black high school with her sign about the, you know, that this principal didn't care and they were trying to get him out. So I was not in that group. As a matter of fact, I did not want to be in it because I was afraid I am not going to be able to graduate if they see me over here. So, but uh, again, it worked as far as my mom. No, I was not ever with my mother. My dad too did not march. He just took a stand when they sent us to the library where we would register register for the white school for that Monday, my dad was the only man in that group of nine, you know, children going and with our parents, he was the only man to show up for that. He wanted to see you go in. Yeah. I mean, he showed up for 
when we had to register, you know, he didn't yeah. get to go that Monday, but he showed up to make sure they understood, like he said, he, that his presence was important to him. Did your parents ever stop you trying to participate at such a young age? No, because, no, and not at all. Our street, the community I lived in was called Bears Den, just like the bear. Mm-hmm. And we started saying we were like little, we were strong. And, and actually it was called Bears Den because a black lady, uh, anyway, I'm sorry, a black man in the community owned about four or five houses, one that my parents rented. And supposedly about 15, 20 years earlier, when a, a, carn, what, a car, carnival came through and he challenged, you know, you could wrestle the bear and he actually wrestled the bear and supposedly threw the bear. And <laughs> so when I grew up, it was called Bears Den. So we, keep, we say to this day, there was a special strength we had. So my little community, we were the ones whose parents were not well-educated uh, and I don't guess they had, felt they had as much to lose. So almost everybody in the community was involved. And you've mentioned feeling fear. How scary was it? Yeah, it was scary. Well, we had a phone. Uh, matter of fact, we got it when I was 12. So I was seventh grade that year. And, you know, we, we would get phone calls. And with the threat of, you know, if you don't put that nigger lover out, what, what's going to happen? And, of course, you got so that we were afraid to even answer the phone. I could speak and say that. It was like, oh, my God. And once they started really bombing and burning, we realized these are just not threats anymore. This is stuff that can really happen. But it, in a way, it made me stronger and more determined that I'm not going to stop now. If you hate me just for trying to do nothing but speak out of, for the right to vote, then this is wrong. I am not turning back. So I found strength. How did, so we kind of, we've been talking about how the town reacted because your protests were nonviolent, um, but the reaction was savage, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. But to Mississippi was what they call, and all the papers I have, is a closed society. So for white people who might have cared enough to be involved, they would have been ostracized, you know, too. So that's what made it really hard. And even for Charlie and other whites who came, uh, I, I read an article that truly said that the worst that the, the I'm trying to get this quote right, that anyway, more so hated than in the N word, than niggers are yeah. nigger lovers. So imagine what that meant for them. We knew what they to expect, but the white kids coming in didn't even have an idea. Go ahead. Charlie was beaten senseless wasn't he well in mississippi yes well he was actually beaten uh he said he went to jail like at least about 11 times 12 based on when he went to you know went to jail in california before he came to mississippi but he was beaten and he was dragged uh he was end up put in not only the local jails but in the county farm which is said to have been the worst prison ever and that's it's called parchment but he refused to leave, didn't he? Yeah, well, he, st- he wasn't, he did not plan to leave. You know, Charlie's involvement took him to Washington, D.C. to testify about police brutality. Because the day that Charlie Scattergood came into Mississippi, uh, into my county, and he went to Miss Fannie Lou Hamer's home, that same day he came to Mississippi, 
in southern Mississippi, three civil rights workers that he had trained with came up missing, Cheney, Goodman, and Swearer. So the thing is, like you said, he was determined to be a part of this. He was sent to D.C. to testify uh, in, in a public setting. I want to say it was even the Congress, uh, Congress because that's where they gave him a letter that Dr. King had written to the congressman saying, please vote for this new uh, you know, uh, act that will prevent a lot of uh, the police brutality, things like that. But the short of it is, Charlie ended up not only being in Indianola, he ended up going to a little town called Moorhead, where he again went through jailings. He went to a little town called Sunflower, Mississippi. So around November of 1965, he took a, a bus, he said. One day he just made up his mind. He couldn't take it anymore, that he was mentally, physically, and all. He was just broken. So he had to leave, and he left. And he had not been, you know, he didn't come back for another 22 years. Yeah, how, to what extent did that Freedom Summer change your life? It was, oh, the Freedom School. Because yeah. a Freedom School was set up, and for the first time, and of course, most instructors were all white. There, there were books on blacks. I didn't even know that there were such things as black writers. I'd never heard that a black could be a poet or a writer of anything, or you know, a black author. So, I got to read books that were written by blacks. And one of the ladies was Gwendolyn Brooks, her poetry. And in reading her poetry, I was already writing. And one of the uh, ladies at the Freedom School read my poetry and said, "You're good. You can be a writer." And, you know, that really awakened me to the fact that I can do something with this. There is such a thing as, as being a writer. And I remember telling my grandfather that, and he told me I needed to think about another type of uh, job. And, uh, yeah. So the Freedom School enlightened me to the fact that there were jobs other than being maybe a teacher, which is not a bad thing, or being a secretary or a nurse, that was pretty much what we were taught. You would be, or of course, a housewife. Mm. So that's in school. And, and it taught us to ask questions. I remember in school, again, at 13, I was eighth grade. And when we would ask why, you know, about marching or whatever, our teachers would tell us, really, it's something that we didn't talk about. We weren't even allowed to ask questions as to why this was happening. So I was just really interested at your grandfather's reaction then. So I, I'm guessing your grandfather was probably born before the 20th century? Yes, yes. In Mississippi? Fact, and the story is my grandfather was born in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, where uh, Oprah Winfrey's from. Okay. And he had to escape in the night. My dad was two years old. My grandfather had to escape. And that they called that the hills to the Delta, Mississippi Delta, where you know, where I was born, because mm. he had encounter with whites. He was a very, very dark-skinned man. Mm -hmm. But his mother always said was Native American because he had straight, straight hair. So that was strange to be as dark as he was with straight hair. And, um, but anyway, he had to run away. So he truly, you know, what he envisioned blacks being was very limited. Yeah. And so to hear his granddaughter saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to write stuff. Yeah. Did he live to, long enough to see you write stuff? He, I think he did, yes. Well, and I don't think he still understood the magnitude because I wrote our class song that well, when I was graduating high school, my song was voted uh, to be the class song. And then I would go off to 
Los Angeles City College and write because uh, my major was journalism, and so I come, you know, composed uh, or, or compiled a few articles that I don't think he again realized what I might be able to do as far as research and what it would become. That I, you know, too bad he didn't get to know that National Geographic and and the NFL and places like that. I've been able to get articles done. I just bet he saw you go to college. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I left home and he, he knew that. I love that. Let's go back to Charlie. So you said he just couldn't take any more in 1965. So he stayed about 18 months in the Mississippi Delta. And then he went to Virginia. But he spent decades championing not only civil rights, but women's rights, gay rights. I mean, he just kept going, didn't he? Yes. Yes, he thought he was always about equality, no matter what. He believed in equality. Matter of fact, uh, when we got together, of course, all these years later, he would share how he even lived with Native Americans for about six months, and and, and he had his name was Rainbow, what is Rainbow Trout, or something. But he has, you know, and Charlie wrote a lot of poetry. He's a he was a great writer. So I've been working on a book with all of his papers. It's just hard because I have loads and loads of papers. So I'm finally dedicated to finishing it. But I have uh, only published a few of his things, but he told his own stories, his letters, his poetry. But the short of it is, yeah, he always, he never stopped fighting. And that's how he and John Lewis connected because Charlie went to Virginia. Then he moved uh, while he was in Virginia to D.C., you know. And like he said, sometime he'd go up to uh, John Lewis' office and they would have their conversations and, you know, but... He was always standing up for the rights of others. I just, I think it's one thing for me to be an African-American and to fight the injustice. But for a, a white boy, such as he was in, in the mid-60s, to say, do you know what, I could just ignore this and get on with my life, but no, hell no, this is just wrong. And to spend his entire life... Um, fighting those injustices he really is quite special isn't he oh he is and especially because he was privileged charlie had um by age 12 he was living in he lived in panama and then over in norway and uh so i've letters from friends that were writing him in norway and of course who they became like doctors and all and and growing up in maine uh he was born in 41, so he went to college uh, 1859. So I've got letters from his friends who, while he was in Seattle and there at Yale and at Harvard, just the kind of people he was around, but yet and still, he saw the world differently. He said, you know, and, and I'm, oh, I must add this. Charlie said, perhaps for him, he wore contacts. Matter of fact, he had glass contacts in 1957, 58. And uh, he said, so he had a problem with his eyesight. He said it, that could have been for him what made him realize by being different how people can be treated. He said, because, you know, he used to wear the big glasses and then all of a sudden he got contacts and they were glass at the time and such a different look that he yeah, had. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and to see the letters where he's writing and saying, yeah, you know, I was speaking and I was talking sometimes, you know, anyway, this girl and she's like, yeah. He's up here. She didn't know who I was. And then later on, of course, he is such, you know, such a handsome gentleman. So, so what happened in 1998? 
1998, he moved to Georgia, actually in August of 98. He and I started talking in 97, seriously, you know, where he had contacted me. And I was um, had just gotten out of, anyway, 26 years of marriage. And I had had, you know, I was no longer with my husband for a year. And Charlie called up. And actually, I met Charlie again when Charlie came. Let me get this straight. Let's just say this. But anyway, Charlie came back to Mississippi in 86. And I had moved in by the nightclub. So he came into the nightclub and I, and he said he was Charlie Scattergood, that he was meeting people anyway, that they had given him my name and he wanted to, he was looking to meet Zelly. You know, he said Zelda, Zelda Rainey. And I said, I'm Zelly. And he said, I'm Charlie Scattergood. And I just reached out my hand. I said, Charlie, oh my God, I remember you. And uh, anyway, he told me, he said, I fell in love with you that day. He said, because you said thank you, and nobody had said thank you. And so anyway, we did not talk again. Um, I did hear from him through a letter. But the short of it is, in 98, he said, you know, he moved to Atlanta, and uh, we were going to get married that May of 99. We were already making plans, and um, unfortunately, he was killed. But he was here long enough to where we got a chance to vote together. Now, that was special. Because oh, wow. it was almost like our lives became became full circle. He and I got a chance, you know, he moved in with me and, and name on the lease, I mean, a true man, you know, and voting time, we went to get to register and we got a chance to vote together. I just, you, you've told me previously um, what happened when he first kind of asked you out and you've mentioned, I mean, you for a long time hated white people and what did he say to you because you were a little bit reticent were you you were like he's a white guy yeah because I had gone through working in corporate America and was always having to fight a battle about you know jobs that we didn't know were being posted so again even though I was no longer in in Mississippi even in California the same stuff was going on blacks were just not we, we just weren't welcome at the table for equality but anyway when Charlie called me and uh, he said he was coming to Atlanta, wanted to know if we could have dinner. But I know it was kind of like, I'm like, because I had told him, he's like, how are you? I go, well, kind of going through it, you know, I'm no longer married or whatever. And he's like, and he got real quiet. And that's when he said he was coming to Georgia, could we have dinner? And I thought I could sense, oh, he might want more. And I just told him, I said, well, you know, I don't date white guys. Mm-hmm. And he got really quiet and he said, can you, you know, when I went to Mississippi, it did not matter whether it was Native Americans or whatever, because I realized all people should have the right to vote. He said, so can you just look at me like a brother? And I, I really didn't, I, I couldn't say anything. I just told myself, well, I'll let you know. And then I called my dad. I actually talked to a cousin and, and I called my parents and my father said, Zelly, Charlie's a good man. So if he's coming, have dinner with him. So about two weeks later, when Charlie called me back, because I didn't call Charlie again, he called me back and he said, I got my answer. And I said, no, you, you can come and we'll have dinner. And uh, that weekend, it was love at first sight. And he asked me to marry him. Oh, that's just amazing. It's so, And he was tragically killed in a motor vehicle accident, wasn't he? Before yes, you had a he, chance to marry Right, February 9th, 1999, got up and went to work and never came back home again. I'm so sorry. I just, it seems like not a fitting end to someone who was, was such a force 
a life force to for something so innocuous it just oh, it really hurts um what do you think he would have made of recent events and of the black lives matter movement i think he would he being let's put it this way because charlie understood what blacks were going through just from his experience from seattle to san francisco to mississippi I think he would say, I understand what they're saying. It's, it's true, all lives matter. But certainly, blacks have not ever been treated equally. So the issue is, is trying to just say, hey, look, please look at this too. Blacks do matter. I think Charlie would have been supportive. And he would have stressed what he understood as to why blacks had to say, look, please look at us. Because if we keep saying all lives matter, and I think this is what he would have said, then blacks will still be in subservient. Inequality would still exist for blacks as a whole. Do you think he'd be sad that it was still necessary to have such a movement in 2020? Oh, certainly. Yes, no doubt about it. And I think he would be hurt realizing that all that he went through and so many others still people were having to fight just especially for the right to vote. You know, for a fair election is all people, or at least people I know are asking for, just give us the opportunity for a fair election. One man, woman, one vote. That's all. And we can't even get that because now it's, you know, the right to vote is being suppressed. Can I ask something of you? And you can say no. I was going to ask you if you would be so kind as to read a poem that you wrote. Okay. The poem is entitled, No Greater Love. It matters not the battle's name, the call that came today for someone's son, somebody's daughter, to journey far away. On foreign soil in desert sand, midst the turmoil of war, one soldier falls, his dream subdued, beneath a shimmering star. She kneels beside him, then marches on with stars and stripes hail high to a victory which knows neither color nor gender or the fear in the enemy's eyes. From dawn till dusk and dusk till dawn, a courageous vigil they keep, each marching to a different drummer, the vanguard for peace. I think you're right. I think Charlie would have been immensely proud of that poem. Zeli, thank you so much for coming on to share your story with us about the civil rights movement and also as well to just tell as many people as possible about Charlie and about what he did and spent his life doing. Because like you say, a a privileged white boy decided that it just wasn't good enough and he spent his life bucking against it and I think he's so special and you too are so special and thank you.
You're welcome. Make sure you tune in tomorrow when we will be joined by entrepreneur and historian and Selma, Alabama native Mark Peterson. He sat down with us and gave us just a fantastic rundown of the career of Martin Luther King and of events in Selma and how they impacted his life and his family's life going forward and how he tries to continue the work that Dr. King started. He really is just so eloquent and brilliant, so don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.